0: I was able to get up close to some pronghorn, actually, a subspecies we'll cover. Uh, so, shout out to Mike Bona, my good buddy at the LA Zoo. What can they teach us?
1: And they even have this interesting role, too, where pronghorn antelope will do really well in certain areas that have been overgrazed by cattle.
0: Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at
1: allcreaturespod.com.
0: Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris.
1: And I'm Angie.
0: So this is our first species of 2021. Mm-hmm. So we did our 200th episode. We had fun quizzing each other on the past 100 or so animals.
1: Yes, Chris. Uh, episode 200 was so fun Probably one of my favorites in the last 100s, just because we got to – well, we laughed a lot, of course. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. we got to reflect on all the cool creatures we've covered in the last year, year and a half. And for me, just going over some of the physiological feats that these critters Mm -hmm. do was just incredible. But then, last week, I started researching the pronghorn antelope. Yes. (laughs) Yes. I think Great now, I think episode 201 might be my new favorite because this species just blew me out of the water. I guess I've been living in a cave or burying my head in the sand, I don't know, but for somebody like myself who thrives on anything with horns, hooves or mm-hmm. antlers,
0: <laughs> perfect for you.
1: Yes, but I have was totally neglecting the pronghorn. I mean, it's from North America. I probably Mm -hmm. just took it for granted because I don't know why. Because as a zookeeper, I did get to work with a lot of exotic antelopes and and deer species. So I think I was just charmed by sable antelope and the talking. And and along the way, I just, I've never really got to know the pronghorn antelope. And so this last week has been very, very fun for me, reading and reading and watching videos and learning. Their physiology is one of a kind. And as far as North America goes, it has no other relative or unique species like it in North America.
0: No, no, no. It's, it's crazy. We're going to talk
1: speed today. We're going to talk horns. It's just, it's really a cool creature. And now it's on my bucket list to definitely go see them in the wild. And they're beautiful. They're beautiful. Oh yeah. 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 So we need to see if our buddy Corbin has them out in Idaho or I just, I need to know where I can go and see them and just watch their behavior and see their, uh, take photos of their beautiful markings. I probably won't be able to catch their speed when they're running.
0: No, <laughs> with, no. With no, my no. When
1: just with just my little iPhone, right? I need a better camera or video uh, camera, but I'm excited. No, so, so for all of our listeners out there, please stick around. I, I know this podcast definitely won't disappoint today.
0: I, you know, I've I was able to get up close to some pronghorn, actually a subspecies we'll cover. Uh so shout out to Mike Bona, my good buddy at the LA Zoo. So he, he uh, took me around and, and showed me the critically endangered species that they're caring for at the LA Zoo and working with uh, down in Baja, California to save the, this, this subspecies of pronghorn. And then this episode has to be dedicated to, and excuse me if I get your name wrong, but Uju Nalapo, they emailed us and, they were, and, and told us the story that they were born in South Africa And says, like most South Africans, I feel a sense of pride and connections to the animals that make South Africa truly unique. Like, who doesn't want to go to South Africa?
1: I feel the same connection. I was born in Michigan. (laughs) And
0: you've been to South Africa. I've
1: been, yes, yes.
0: Yeah. But they currently live in Laramie, Wyoming, doing work there, and said, I would love it if you covered the pronghorn. So wrote back, said, absolutely. Listen to the episode. So this one's for you. It, it's an amazing species i it just oh i'm giddy this is a great one to start the year off with
1: yes thank you for the recommendation like i said my week was changed because of you so this is really just one of a kind antelope uh especially yes. so, here in yeah. north america and wyoming and in your backyard so thank you yeah.
0: and just want to shout out to julia and ryan who joined us on patreon this week Angie said we did have fun doing the 200th episode. We did a bonus episode for Patreon. You know, normally those run 30 to 40 minutes, but it ran over an hour and I still didn't get to all Angie's questions. And I'm like, we got to cut it off.
1: (laughs) Chris Chris had to get out the old cane and kind of drag me away (laughs) and say, well, we'll do another one. If you love this quiz stuff and our listeners like it and our, especially our Patreon listeners that are helping support us uh, grow this podcast, then we will do more of them. So, uh, It was a lot of fun, though.
0: Yeah. And just, you know, one Starbucks coffee a month helps us, helps conservation. We give back. We're actually voting on the, the organization of the month now to send money to and you promote, help promote us as we promote the podcast and this information and circulate it around the globe because we know we have listeners all over the place. So thank you so much.
1: And my only ask is if somebody, anybody out there could do me a huge favor and drop us a few kind words on, on Apple podcast, iTunes review, that would be fantastic. It helps get the podcast in more circulation and we haven't had a review in a couple months. So we're stagnant. So help, help break the ice for 2021 and let everyone know how much you love this podcast.
0: And what makes this species so special, Angie, just to jump back into it. Is this this horns or antler question with this animal? It says prong horn. Mm-hmm. so I'm assuming they're horns. But I know there's some information out there that might not be true. But I didn't want to go down that hole because I knew you would.
1: You're a smart so man, Chris. Sense. Yeah, <laughs> just, you, you stay in your lane. Loud. That's part of it. We we know we know yeah. we know who does what. Well, yeah. but but. Right back at you, buddy. Because it's the same thing for uh, a lot of the evolutionary facts. Mm-hmm. I started, I started reading a little bit about they might be related drafts, and then I was just like, you know what, this is Chris's baby. I'm gonna let <laughs> I'm gonna stay in my own lane with the horns, yeah, yes. and he will do evolution, okay. and we're gonna have a lot yes. of fun.
0: Yeah, they have some great, great natural history. It's gonna be really fat. It's fascinating. I was fascinated by it. So, I think we need to describe why this antelope is so unique from, say. Uh, you know, something you would see in Africa. You know, you've seen, I don't know how many species of antelope in Africa, but the pronghorn looks a little bit different, right?
1: Yes, Chris. It, I think it definitely has some really unique features that set it apart from other species of antelope that we would find in the African continent. It is darling, first and foremost, uh, and it has a really distinct face. And by distinct, I mean beautiful, because the color pattern of the face is actually tricolor, which includes black high points, black, really dark brown, uh, down the, in between the two horns, and then down the nose, and then, of course, a nice black nose, which is just so, I want to squish it, but I, you know, that's just (laughs) the mom side of (laughs) it. It's, yeah, like, yeah, it's yeah. like when I see little yeah. baby toes and I want to eat them. Uh, but a beautiful black nose. And then around the eyes is a fawn, orange, brown, tawny color, if you will. Uh, a brown, for lack of better words, but like light brown. And then on the jowls and kind of masking around that is white. So, and I haven't even got to the horns or the ears yet. So it's just a really dynamic and multicolored face and that really stands out, I suppose. And I I imagine that might help with camouflage. I'm sure you'll talk about that when we get to evolution. But then and its body shape is very typical of any ungulate or any hooved animal. It's got it's long and kind of has a round barrel or or belly. And along the backside is going to be that tawny, fawny (laughs) I don't Mm -hmm. know. Sorry for my non-English speakers, (laughs) (laughs) brownish, light orange color. It's really beautiful that goes across the the dorsal or the top of their neck and their back. But then on the underside of like their chin and their uh, throat and chest area are almost rings, it looks like, of like white and then the tawn orange color and then white and then the, the the orangey brown color. And then they have a white chest and a white undercarriage. By undercarriage, I mean the ventral side of their body, their like belly. So they got a white belly. And they're just beautiful. Uh, so oh, yeah. a lot, a lot of like flash, Striking. yeah, very flashy colors. Yeah. I mean, I guess when I thought of a pronghorn antelope, if you would have asked me before, I, I unlike Chris, I haven't had the pleasure to see them up close and personal. I would have said like, oh, they're brown. I had no idea they were this beautiful and flashy. And then I've even talked about the horns. The horns are really unique. And we'll talk a lot about it. I have two whole slides coming up. So put your (laughs) seatbelts on folks. But in general, they of course come up other above the eyes and between the ears Mm and they, they, they curve up, uh, and kind of like in a, almost, almost like it's about to form a heart, but they have little branches off of them, which is actually pretty unique for horns, which is part of the problem. And that's probably why they're called antelope as well. Besides being known as pronghorn antelope, they're also known as prong buck and American antelope. Mm-hmm. So just a really if you like hoof stock, they're just a really good looking hoof stock in my opinion. Yeah, With- it's just
0: it's just sad that they're so forgotten because they're so beautiful. Like they're so well, Chris, beautiful.
1: I'm part of the problem. That that's the revelation <laughs> I had this week. I was yeah. like, oh my gosh, I need like yeah. I need to promote uh pronghorn much more than I have been. And so I just want to thank you to our listeners for reaching yeah. out to us. And uh yeah, because now I'm totally on the pronghorn antelope train.
0: Yeah. And just the sizes. So four to five feet uh, from nose to tail, or almost up to one and a half meters long, you know, in length, body length, up to 42 inches at the shoulder or a hundred centimeters. And so they're not huge, you know, they're like a smaller deer. I I would put like a white tail deer, Uh, way up to the males can weigh up to 140 pounds, 65 kilograms, females, a little bit smaller, not You know, almost similar lengths and heights, but uh, only weigh about 110 pounds or 48 kilograms. So that testosterone muscle building oh, going to be the manly pronghorn to, to, I guess we'll find out what they do with, with breeding and courtship. Now they have a really interesting range because we'll start in the North in Canada. So Southern Canada around Alberta is, is where they're found. Then you come down into the northern part of the western United States. So their historical range used to be like San Diego, parts of California, uh, all through down in Texas. So all of that part of the western United States. Mm -hmm. But now today they're fragmented, obviously, with development and settlement uh, in the United States. So there is pockets of them. Then... And we're going to get into the subspecies, but down in Baja, California, there's still remnants hanging on and then parts of Sonora, Mexico. So the Northern part of Mexico, there's still pockets of pronghorn subspecies that are endangered. So, so we'll talk about that. But I mean, again, Angie, here we are another herbivore, their ecological niche. I will say this is another great American success story of conservation Mm-hmm. They they were down to 13,000 animals at the turn of the the end of the 19th century, just like the bison, just like the turkey, all of these iconic species in, in the United States, Canada, parts of Mexico, to, to where there was a, an effort to bring them back and preserve them to where now you have like around 700,000 adults, but... It's the subspecies, the ones in Mexico, really are the ones that are critically endangered or endangered, and we'll talk about that when we, when we get there.
1: Right, Chris. But as a whole, the IUCN labels pronghorn antelope as least concerned, but that's because they're lumping all the subspecies together.
0: Yeah, and the American one is is fine. It's the 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 the, the really the three subspecies that are like you know South United States and Sonor- North Mexico, and then that Baja population. So they're endangered. Yeah, gotcha. they're on their way okay. out. The subspecies, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, a herbivore. I mean, another herbivore that's a critical to the plains, you know, seeding grasses, spreading manure, all the things they do. You know, being a prey animal for I was going to say in the
1: food web, they're are really important uh, as far as, of course, like you said, consuming the grasses, and but then, of course, being consumed by some of our larger, bigger predators that roam the American plains, like. Wolves and coyotes, mm. and mm. the golden eagle, I even read. So, mm. they have, they definitely have a niche. And and then, Chris, I was even reading that uh, pronghorn antelopes are valuable parts of rangeland management because they'll actually eat the like noxious yeah. or un- unpalatable, yeah. for be- lack of better terms, weeds that uh, cattle don't want to consume. Mm-hmm. So, it's really interesting. It's like they're almost goats. Yeah, you know, what they eat. Yeah, absolutely. And they, cause they coexist pretty well with cattle. So there's not really, you know, there's not that, that predator-prey conflict like we see with wolves and cattle out west. Um, and, and they even have this interesting role, too, where pronghorn antelope will do really well in certain areas that have been overgrazed by cattle because they don't mind that little stubby... They'll eat whatever, like <laughs> kind of like a goat. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't mind. Yeah. They, they don't mind the, the leftovers. They'll they'll take they'll take a uh, sloppy seconds, no problem, right? It yeah, doesn't yeah. matter. And so, but as we'll talk further in this podcast, is because a lot of the rangelands are fenced off and things like that. It can hinder the pronghorn movement and um, often, sometimes, and often result in their dehydration or starvation.
0: Right. And, and this week, you know, thinking about it and thinking about where they are in the United States, I really wanted to focus on on one issue that's been contentious, I guess, in the last decade. And that is hydraulic fracking. And there's been a lot of this going on, not only in the United States and Canada, uh, probably parts of Mexico. Now I'm seeing it around the world. There was an article on hydraulic fracking in South Africa and what this is, is trying to get uh, gas and shale oil up from under the ground. And it, it, it is having a detrimental effect on the environment. We just don't know how much. And, and, and here I'm going to talk about a little bit. So what it is, so what hydraulic fracking is, is it's, it's a new technique developed to get these gases and oils out of the ground. So they inject large quantities of water and chemicals under high pressure down a wellbore that goes down and fractures rock formation. So deep shale layers, which, you know, I I can't remember geology way back when, been so many years, but basically shooting a lot of chemicals and water into the ground that breaks up these rocks and then allows them to extract natural gas and oil. The concern is, and, and I've got some data, some studies, is the chemicals they are using are contaminants, and some of them are carcinogenic. The big problem is there are accidents. We're humans. We make mistakes. It happens in oil and gas drilling. So there, there are spills, leaks, toxins. These toxins get leaked into the wastewater, into streams, into the, uh, the groundwater, and that is contaminating not only natural habitat, but even people's drinking water in certain parts of the country. And the problem with all of this is it's very poorly regulated because right. of not to get into politics or whatever, but you can you can look between the lines. The uh, the recent administrations and even, you know, who even knows the one, you know, Obama, I don't know, but there's there's a lot of lobbying money there. To keep this going and it's providing a cheap resource to citizens of the united states and canada and elsewhere so it's like a, oh well you go out here you pull up this gas and oil it's cheap it's cheap to produce it keeps you know energy costs down and we keep our people happy and we get reelected. so it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on i think both uh, politicians or whoever are guilty of uh letting this go unregulated The companies are supposed to self-report if there's spills and problems. So we don't we don't know the extent. Like we just don't know. We just don't know the extent of this hydraulic fracking on the environment because you know some of this stuff is slipping through the cracks. The other issue is when they go in to set up a site, and I have friends that work in this industry. So you yeah, know, they're probably not following the podcast, but I've got friends from college. <laughs> well, I we know they're you. <laughs>
1: yes.
0: they might learn a little <laughs> something, right? They make their livelihood doing this, and I just I, it's fine. I love them, and, and they're on their path in life. But you know, you go out and you make these fracking pads, so you go in it, and you could tear down forests, you're making roads, you're disrupting habitat, uh, grasslands, whatever it is, and you're putting laying down concrete. So you're disrupting the habitat, you're destroying trees, methane's a byproduct of this process. So it's just, it's emitting more carbon right into the atmosphere, which right now is our enemy on climate change. Then one fracking well needs about 20 million gallons of water to do this stuff. And so they're just sucking up all the the natural water to, to use this in the fracking process. So really quick, the impacts, uh, there was a Yale study that analyzed the chemicals used in the ground, in -hmm. the wastewater. So you're looking at arsenic, benzene, cadmium, lead, chlorine, mercury, and these are all carcinogenic developmental problems, reproductive toxicity, and they're very concerned that these chemicals are either in the wastewater on the surface or leaking into groundwater or both so that's a big concern that came out of yale and then just to tie this up with the pronghorn this study was published a few years ago in biological conservation and some scientists from it was canada and north dakota but the title was long-term changes in pronghorn abundance index linked to climate and oil development in north dakota so these companies going into the Western United States and other parts, even Pennsylvania, I mean, they're going in and they're impacting populations of animals. So Pronghorn specifically in North Dakota, the populations were increasing up to 2007. And now there's been a huge rapid decline up into the last 10 years because okay. it's very it's correlated with oil and gas development and then also changes in climate change where the weather extremes are insane. It's super hot or super cold. And so it's having a direct effect on pronghorn populations. So to tie all this hydraulic fracking back, while it provides cheap energy, it does have an environmental impact. And I think it's something worth exploring further and hopefully gets regulated more to protect our wild spaces because, you know, we we need them. We need these wild spaces. We need them because they're disappearing quickly.
1: Absolutely. And it's always just blows my mind, just a really quick sidebar tangent. Living here in Florida, we're in the sunshine state. And you would think that solar would be like our number one source of energy. Yeah. And it's just not. And a lot of it has to do with politics and political groups and yada, yada, blada. But but I'm very hopeful that in years to come here, we're going to start realizing that throwing a couple solar panels up on our house or our business or our backyard or whatever is going to be a lot better than, yes, destroying the environment, lots and lots of acres of the environment and all the organisms, as you always like to Mm -hmm. talk about once in a while, that microbiota that people Mm -hmm. forget about that live in the soil all, all the way up to all the way up to the food web, to, to the, uh, bigger, more iconic species, if you will. Uh, and so I'm hopeful for that not only in my state of Florida, but just in North America in general, because we just need more of it. I don't understand why it's so slow to catch on.
0: Yeah. And I, I mean, when I was bebopping around the UK with Pippa, like, that is a big thing. Like, she had solar panels on her home. Uh, it, it It is – they all have solar – not everybody. And it's but most
1: not places. as sunny there, and it still no. works. <laughs> the weather was horrible.
0: The weather is awful in England. To all of our listeners in the UK, I loved my time there. I love your country so much, but the weather is – Horrible, and you know it. <laughs> you all know it. <laughs> That's why you well, go to Spain. I say, I
1: think the people and the culture and the architecture make up for it. When I, I, I only yeah. lived in London for three months, but yeah. uh, I, as much as I missed a little bit of the sunshine, I, I, it was definitely made up for it in a lot of the Guinness and cider. And <laughs> <laughs> It's, and is, baguettes and candy and art museums and uh, yeah. historical monuments. And just the overall vibe there is amazing and very, yeah, I, uh, very fun.
0: One of my most favorite places on earth is, is the UK. I just, I love there. I love there. I love the people. I love, the, I love the history.
1: All right. So I love the, just... I love the accent. I'm sure you do too yeah. as well. Oh God. Pippa,
0: <laughs> Pippa melts my heart every day we talk. It's just uh, that Liverpool accent. Is just too much. All right, so talking about history, let's jump into the natural history of the pronghorn. Now, it's even toed ungulate, so one of Angie's favorite. A- any ungulate is just, you know, I love horns. them all. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> but, but this is a cool yeah. one. This is a definitely a cool one.
0: Right, so that's the order Artiodactyla. Now, the pronghorn belongs to the family Antilocapridae.
1: How many other species are in that family do you think? Well, it's are we doing trivia again? <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs>
0: you have me trained up the But last I actually
1: year. know the answer to this because this is why yeah. I had started reading and I was like, "Oh, I'm just going to yeah. let Chris, you know, Chris yeah. go for this one because this is his baby, but uh no, they're the only one. That's yeah, that's what's that's so it. cool. It's crazy."
0: Yeah, a family like that is it that are the only remaining species. Cuz they're oddballs. So- they're way oddballs and their closest relatives
1: They're even-toed oddballs. ungulate oddballs. Yeah. the the,
0: <laughs> the only rel- closest relative you wouldn't guess. You're thinking Africa, antelope, something. No, it's the giraffe and Ocopies. That's their closest relative on the evolutionary tree. That's like, so silly. Yeah, it's just parallel evolution, they were calling it. Like it just Okay. You know. Like, like is that like convergent or yeah, I saw the word parallel. And I was like, okay, you know, it's it's kind of similar, okay. similar traits. But yeah, that was crazy. That they're the only one in the family. Uh, the genus is Antilocapra, and the general species name is Antilocapra americana. Now, the subspecies. Okay, there's five subspecies. So the Amer- the uh, americana americana is the main species you see. That's doing really well. The, okay, Antilocapra Americana Mexicana, this is the Mexican pronghorn, is endangered. The Americana Orgona, the organ pronghorn, is doing fine, least concern. The Americana, so, oh gosh, these, these, these are a lot of words. Sonorensis, the Sonoran pronghorn, is endangered. And then the one I got to see with Mike Bona, the Americana Peninsularis is the one in Baja, California, and they are critically endangered. So that's the one the L.A. Zoo is working with, To So, again, why zoos are important. They have an emergency population. They're trying to rehabilitate and release down in Mexico. So, So that's your overall tree, your family tree looking at it. So... The evolutionary history, the, the, the biggest thing is the pronghorn are not antelope. We call them antelope. They are not antelope as the, in the true sense of the word. They are, like Angie said, they are the oddball. They are different. And their history is still somewhat murky. We, we, we don't have it nailed down yet. But what we do know is the antelope popped up about 17 million years ago. So Mary Cotus, was a, a, a pronghorn-looking distant relative. Okay, so that's 17 million years in the making of today's pronghorn antelope, how long it's taken. They did amazing in North America. They proliferated for millions of years. I mean, which is insane, that timeline, you think about it. They, they, they've gone through, rolling through all the changes in climate, the warming, the natural warming and cooling trends, were able to adapt so much so that this is one of the, the the most fun facts about them is they're the second fastest land mammal. Yes. Yes.
1: And I think I knew that, but I didn't know it. I'm glad I'm glad nobody asked me.
0: <laughs> like yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, a year ago, because I would have been like, huh. And it, it would have come to me. But really Going over some of the physical adaptations of how they run so fast, it it really uh it really it will stick with me now forever because I mean, and not only in North America, but in North and South America, like in the new Mm -hmm. world. I mean, Mm -hmm. they they hit speeds of ninety-eight kilometers per hour when they're sprinting. Yeah, sixty
0: miles per hour. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, cheetahs like what, 70? So It's just incredible, and then they can ha- they can do sustained speeds, so long distance, if you will, mm-hmm. for fifty nine to sixty five kilometers per hour. I now, mean- why?
0: They, it's why. There's a, there's an evolutionary reason why. Why have they evolved to be that fast? Who are they <laughs> running away from?
1: <laughs> I don't know. Try,
0: <laughs> not the saber tooth cat. I, I was gonna
1: say the yeah, Well, that's, that's that's what I thought. Okay. Yeah, one of those big cats. <laughs>
0: So, harken back to our quiz show. For the it was the Patreon quiz show. This species experienced a bottleneck, almost went extinct at the last ice age. So, our Patreon listeners will know this,
1: and, and I remembered it, was, it. I saved a little yeah. bit of room in my mom brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was the
0: cheetah. The cheetah. So, the American cheetah that went extinct at the at the end of the last ice age. So, the pronghorn developed speed to evade cheetahs. In the Americans.
1: So cool. This is why I love this podcast. <laughs> nice? And I'm, and I'm nice? glad I didn't read ahead. I'm glad I, I'm, I'm like surprised yeah. right now. I'm like, well, that's so cool. It all comes together. It all makes sense.
0: Yeah, it just was. That's why they're so fast, because there was cheetahs about 10,000 years ago, 11, 12, 13,000 years ago, running around you know, Colorado, chasing down pronghorn antelope and other things. So they evolved the speed to uh, to evade them. Now with this mass, it's, ex- it's, it's, it's not one of the major mass extinctions. The last, the fifth one was T-Rex. That's when it was, but there was this mass die off of large, large megafauna, not all the frogs and amphibians and trees. That's a mass extinction. There was this mass die off and it's still, I'll, I'll get into a little bit of why they think some of it had an effect on pronghorn at least. But mammoths died, giant sloths died, American camels died, so they completely d- disappeared. And this was this is what another really cool fact about the pronghorn on the plains. Them and the bison were one of the few large plant eaters remaining. Gotcha. They survived. Okay. Mm-hmm. They survived, and so you know they were able to adapt and do that. Now. I got two more slides on this because again, it was so fun to read this. (laughs) The, okay. Today's large pronghorn. Do you know there was a dwarf pronghorn? No, but I want one. This thing. Oh, it's the cutest thing. i have, like a little model. Yeah. It, it stood about two feet tall. So two centimeters only weighed about 20 pounds or 10 kilograms. And lived from about 300,000 years ago to 10,000 years ago and died out at the end of the Ice Age. They assume it was just as fast, same body structure, just it's a dwarf. So you had these little pronghorn running around. Darn And I know, I know. It's so, oh, it's so cute. It's so cute. Anyways, the question scientists have are, why did the dwarf pronghorns die out and not the larger ones? So, do you know why? I, you, there's no way you know this. There's no, no
1: I definitely don't. I'm, I'm, no, Chris, I, I, I'm like just listening to you. I am, I'm I'm <laughs> sitting back. My feet are up. I'm drinking my tea. Yes, it's yes. like I'm the listener okay. right now. So just okay. go for it, buddy. This
0: blew me away because I've, I have not seen this before. So the hypothesis is this, this die off, this extinction. There's many re- reasons they think uh, what happened. They think humans had some influence because at that point, you know, we were in North and South America hunting, taking up some resources. So probably mammoths because they have such a long uh, generation interval. But I didn't know this because at the end of the ice age, CO2 levels were super low, Angie. So not like today where they're too high. Right. And they're, 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 they're ha- wrecking havoc with the, the environment. They were so low, plants were struggling to grow. Hmm. So trees were dying off, dying back. Grasses could come in, so you had more of an evolving grasslands, and then less trees meant these dwarf pronghorn had a harder time hiding from predators. So they think some of that pressure is what led to their extinction. Huh? Yeah, okay. I just yeah. was like, I didn't realize the low CO two would really impact plant life, but apparently it did. And that I mean, helped it,
1: Yeah, it makes grasslands. sense, but wow. Interesting. Yeah. And that's helped the grasslands flourish, mm-hmm. which is awesome because then it gave us the current bison and pronghorn, mm-hmm. the the bigger ones, but wow. Well, thank yeah. you and for that. I I will yeah. I will uncross <laughs> my feet and sit back up and start being a active co-host with you. But that's, so that's fascinating. My, uh,
0: I I was their natural history was fascinating. And you learned some science in there. And it gives you insight into today because again, with that, yes, extinction is natural. It is natural to lose about two species a year, not two species a day like we're seeing right now. And yeah, it's it's nor, warming trends, cooling trends of the earth. That's all natural, but it happens slowly. It doesn't happen this rapidly. Animals had time to adapt like the pronghorn. Some went extinct because they couldn't adapt. Others didn't. Today, we're losing species because they don't have time to adapt. Where many could, they, they just don't have the time. So that's why it's a concern. Anyways, ready for some physiology. <laughs> Storytelling.
1: Yes. Uh, no, their physiology is fun. So oh, I, like I said, I this? think all around this species is just so cool.
0: Yeah. How about this? Okay. Lives about 10 years in the wild. Throw that out there prong hordes this 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 cracks me up have very large eyes angie they can see 320 right they don't have any blind spots what other mammal is the eyeball the size of large mammal
1: Ooh, i don't know but the way you're looking at me i'm gonna say horse elephant what they
0: have this yes i was like what their oh eyes God. are so large. All right, that's
1: definitely going to be a fact on our next <laughs> <Yes>. trivia show. <laughs> I will wow. remember Wow, <laughs> and what, that yeah. probably is what makes them so beautiful when you're like looking at their profile. Yeah. But that's incredible. They're,
0: yeah, I was like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Their their eyes are about the size of an elephant. And then Angie, I you know, what are some, I know we talked a little bit about the speed, some of the predators. What are some of the other adaptations that they do?
1: Yeah, Chris, like we said, they're fast. They're the fastest animal in the new world. And not only are they fast, of course, not as fast as a cheetah, but what's fascinating is the pronghorn antelope can maintain high speeds for a long distance, like I said, at 59 to 65 kilometers per hour for a much longer time than a cheetah can. And there's several adaptations. I'll just run through most of them. Uh, First and foremost, if you're running for a long time that fast, uh, you need a lot of oxygen. And so I'm teaching an equine exercise physiology class this spring. And I'm learning a lot as far as like pulmonary and cardiac function because you and I, we worked more with reproductive Reproductive physiology, nutrition, digestive physiology, um, and of course behavior. So, learning about lungs and horses because horses are amazing athletes as well. That's a different pod for a different day, but maybe you'll cover that on your uh, your other little side project podcast that yeah. you're doing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the about connection Yeah, mm-hmm, yeah.
0: Equine yep. connection. Check it out if you're interested
1: in horses. Definitely, so it is awesome. They're crazy amazing athletes, but. The pronghorn antelope has several evolutionary specializations for high oxygen consumption, so to get that oxygen in. So in general, they have a really unique ability to get a lot of oxygen into their body, into their lungs, and into their cells. And so when you compare pronghorn's body weight to other animals of the same size, pronghorns have a value three times higher than that of another animal their same body size in order to get the volume Of oxygen into their lungs and then into their into their body. And you need oxygen to run. That's any runner knows that. Uh, that's basic physiology. But what separates out the pronghorn antelope is they have exceptionally large lungs for their body size. And this is actually true about horses too. But uh pronghorns, really big lungs, helps them get a lot in. But what's super crazy and cool for all my exercise buffs out there is. But unlike cheetahs, the pronghorns are basically able to run that sustained speed and make ATP, which is what we need to move our muscles and do all that, uh, aerobically. So Mm -hmm. they're using all this oxygen they bring in, which can generate a lot of ATP. Where a lot of species, when they click over into their fast-twitch muscles for sprinting and things like that, they start using ATP anaerobic or no oxygen involved, um, energy metabolism to create ATP. So the pronghorn is really unique in the fact that they can get all this oxygen with their big lungs and then use it to make a ton of ATP and then sustain that muscle movement for a long time. So crazy cool as far mm-hmm. as their tidal volume of oxygen that can that they can bring in. Other than that, they have a lot of like skeletal and anatomical features Mm -hmm. that have evolved over time to help them run so fast. And so being an ungulate, they have hooves and they have two long pointed toes that have cushions on the bottom of them that they can act as a shock absorber while running these high speeds. And they also run with their mouths open. That actually sounds a lot like yeah. me. Yeah, Sometimes I'll be, yeah, yeah. I'll be doing these 5Ks and it'll be like the last little push and they'll click a photo of you crossing the finish line. And my and mouth like, is like, <laughs> yeah, my, my, my chin is like almost to my chest. But at any rate, but that helps them, of course, once again, get the oxygen in. They also have a posture that allows them to stand kind of on the tips of their toes, which enables them when they're running to have a bigger stride length. And with their skeletal anatomy, the length of the radius, so that's like your forearm bone, you have the radius and the ulna, is long or even longer than the femur. So the femur is that that's your, your big leg bone, right? And similar to other antelopes and probably horses, the ulna is reduced and fused to the radius. So they don't, they really just have one forearm bone for, the, for lack of better terms. And then they lost their clavicle. They don't have a clavicle, which is kind of interesting, I think, from a physiological point of view, uh, which that helps basically the scapula or the shoulder blade to be able to, to reorient and like lay flat against their chest. So it, I think, helps enable them to breathe bigger breaths as they're right, running. Right. And then lastly, their lower limbs, like their metatarsals and metacarpals and things like that, are – smaller in size, which makes them lighter. So the lighter you are, the faster you can run. And they have interlocking um, spines and grooves in their joints, in certain joints, that help modify them and allow them to act as hinges. If you think of like a door hinge swinging Mm -hmm, open and mm -hmm. close only, but allowing just that simple swinging hinge-like motion enables them to travel in a line faster because they're not kind of going to the side at all. They're going in a straight right, right. line straight for the most line, part. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, just yeah. just really, really incredible physiological adaptations from the way they take in oxygen to the way their bone structures are built. I mean, they're built for speed. They evolved, as you mentioned, running from the American cheetah before it became extinct. And so it can run, baby. Run, baby, yeah. run.
0: Yeah, and that's just you know you think about the adaptations to do that in the physiology behind it. It's amazing. Uh, the only other thing I'd add on there, as far as evading predators, you know, because some of the predators they have to evade today. I mean, they evolved to cheetah. So the one thing they do is is when a predator grabs them, their hair comes off. It like they get a they get a a, a mouthful of hair and not flesh. So it's just one of those adaptations, and the hair is hollow. Like we talked about that in other species, I think polar bear that helps insulate them in the, on the cold plains. But, you know, they. I could see a cheetah running, might catch up to it, grabs it with its mouth and just has a mouth full of hair like you just, you know, got it from your dog. Just,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, then it just yeah, keeps yeah, yeah. on going. And you basically, I didn't even, in their description, I didn't really even talk about their cute tail. And then basically the just keeps on running and you see that little cotton ball white underpatch mm-hmm. as it's hopping, running way past you, yeah. right? Off yeah, it goes. Yeah.
0: Yeah, they're amazing. Now, Angie, I... Okay, like I said, I stayed in my lane, but I started reading it, and I was like, <laughs> whoa, okay. Are these horns? Are these antlers? What are these on the top of their head? Because they're prong, horn,
1: antelope. Is their whole name a lie?
0: Is it a whole lie? Is it just a lie? Yes and
1: no. Uh The question okay. is, are they horns or antelopes? The answer is they're actually both, or they're a cross between horns and antlers. And so... From a strictly naming perspective, then yes, it, it probably is somewhat misleading because we, I know we've talked in depth. I think there, I think there's a whole podcast I just talked about the difference between horns Reindeers. and antlers. Reindeer, so but... go back to that nice Christmas episode if you want that fun times. Uh, but but generically, antlers when you think of a deer, uh, they're made of bone, calcium. And they're shed every year, which is just a phenomenon amongst itself. It's one of the most exaggerated, enhanced, secondary sexual characteristics in males to grow these 20, 30-pound, 40-pound rack, depending on the species, to only drop it and lose it and then grow the whole thing back again next year, okay? Whereas horns, when you think of gazelles or sable antelope or just antelopes in general, horns are made of compressed keratin. So not bone. Keratin is a protein. Think of your fingernails, think of your own hair, think of rhino horn. And although it grows from a, bor- a bony core at their base of their head, a horn is never shed. So for instance, if a gazelle or a sable antelope breaks or goat break their horn, it does not grow back. They're not shed. You get one pair for life, off you go, okay? So the interesting thing with a pronghorn antelope is that their horns are made of keratin. So that puts it in the horn category, right? Not It's not made of bone or calcium. However, interestingly enough, and researchers can't really tell us why, pronghorn antelope shed their horns each year. And that sentence actually was hard for me to say. Like shedding horns, those two words in my mom brain have never been said together aloud. Like you don't yeah. shed a horn; you shed an antler. And I was—I right. spent like ten years at the zoo correcting people. Yes, <laughs> so yes. This is—it's just—it's just crazy, crazy, fascinating. And so, beyond that, these horns that the pronghorn antelope have? will have forks in them. So little side branches, not a lot, not, not, not as many points as a deer, if you will. Uh, but it can have a buck can have horns that go to be 10 inches with at least one forward facing prong, if not more than that. And the female also will grow horns as well, but they're much smaller. And of course, the horns are used for dominance displays and females protecting themselves and males engaging in battles with one another to win territory and score females. And we'll talk more about that when we get to uh, behavior and reproduction. And once a year, a new sheath of keratin forms under the old and basically pushes off the horns um, after rut. Each year, so after the males and females have used them during the breeding season, it's just bonkers, and that's it. So
0: (laughs) that's it. (laughs) It is bonkers. The whole thing. And so,
1: yeah. One of the articles I was reading basically said so the pronghorn antelope is the only animal in the world that has these forked horns that aren't just one horn. Rather, it's a a, a sheep or ram that spirals or a kudu that twists. Those guys don't have any forks. The pronghorn antelope has a fork, but it's shed each year and no other antelope can, no other horn rhinos don't shed their horns. Stable antelopes don't shed their horns. So just incredible and unique. And I'm so happy that we had this recommendation and I got to (laughs) share all these fun facts with you. Well,
0: it's just so unique too. It's just so unique. It's just such a different animal compared to the normal you know, horned or ant- antlered animals. So it's
1: s- fun. Yeah. And so with that, I'm assuming that if for some reason a pronghorn antelope broke its horn, mm-hmm. not at the base where it would yeah. be a bloody mess, but higher yeah. up, I'm assuming that it would regrow, right? Which is different yeah. than yeah. other horned animals.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating stuff. So before we jump into behavior real quick, we did talk about, we did mention that they, they, they are like goats, right? So uh, they eat a variety of, of, of plants and grasses and a couple studies. One study, they actually eat cactus. So those those animals down in the desert. Yeah, they figure a way to do that. Like uh, I think it was like 60% of that, grasses, shrubs. Um, so they eat a variety of things. And then they are like, they are ruminants. So they do chew like their cud and things like that. So so very important to the environment, maintaining health of the ecosystem. But so besides running, I guess I don't know if you want to talk more about running, but what are some of the other cool behaviors that these animals have?
1: Well, like most ruminants or hoof stock, they definitely spend a lot of their day foraging. I, one article I read said they were dainty foragers, which I like that. So they, they eat like small meals, but they'll basically eat, yeah, stems, leaves, grasses, shrubs. It doesn't really matter. They They're not picky about their plants, which is... I think awesome. I wish I wish my kids could take a couple notes from the pronghorn yeah. antelope. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But they're gonna spend most of their day and night eating. Um, and when they're not grazing, they're gonna chew their cud at rest. And they don't, they're not big sleepers. Uh they may sleep 10 minutes at a time and then wake up. They're always on they're always on the ready for predators. And there's groups of them, right? So they're a herd species, and a lot of how many of them are in a herd and things like that, or who's in what herd together, will depend on seasonal movements. So sometimes they can be in these huge, large wintering herds uh, that all move together in, in, you know, 10, 20, 100 animals plus. And in the summer, they might form smaller bands of like up to 10 individuals. There's also, there'll be bachelor herds, right, of, of the young bucks that have been kicked out of their natal group. Um, but they'll all maybe come together in the winter when foraging can be hard. They'll travel a lot. And that's where Chris, as he mentioned, sometimes fences and just our man-made urbanization has kind of created some uh, upward battles for them. Because, yeah, they can move. Because especially in the winter time, they need to move, you know, hundreds of kilometers in order to find food, uh, especially in the colder climates. And like most hoofstocks, they have several ways to communicate with each other. Uh, a lot of it's going to be through visual, vocal, and olfactory uh, cues, and the scent glands are really f- important for them to communicate one to one another, uh, whether it's two males defending territories or a female attracting a male or a, a doe, the mom leaving a scent to her fawn or her offspring. Um uh, for instance, they have glands, scent glands on their rump. And if danger is near, like if that wolf is around the corner, uh, when the pronghorn sees the predator, uh, he or she can release an alarm odor from those glands uh, and when they're rump and the fur stands up and basically send a, a sight and a chemical message to its other herd members like run baby run," <laughs> right uh, and then during breeding season especially the males do a lot of scent marking to let the other male know that this is my territory and these are my females and in addition to their scent glands they'll do a lot of urinating and defecating and in many ways tell the other male like stay away however a lot of the more up-and-coming young bucks need to win some females and so there there are often male-to-male interactions which usually start off with a couple steps first they stare at each other and you can let me know Chris if you had any other if you have any male like maybe with with one of your brothers or so you're pretty you're like one of the most peaceful people I know but I just (laughs) I visualize like two Yeah, I, yeah, novel. yeah. You're novel, you're a yeah. total noble, so it's not you. But like, yeah. I just visualize like two dudes like at a bar or something, and they like are mad at each other, and so they start off by staring, and then uh, the one that holds the territory will vocalize, kind of like a snort, wheeze, like get out of here, and then the intruder might like thrash his head and be like no, and then he'll sneeze and he'll grind his teeth, and then. Worst case scenario, they keep coming towards each other and then a chase will pursue for up to a couple kilometers even. So a lot of times the more dominant or the male holding the territory will win. Uh, but if he doesn't, then they can use their horns and have a battle. And this horn to horn, head to head, pushing battle, uh, they basically are trying to knock each other off balance. And they usually... They fight pretty hard, and so it's going to be only a couple minute battle, and injuries can be serious depending on if the submissive one backed off or decided not to. So yeah, yeah, and you'll be more likely to see these male to male breeding rut like behavior interactions um, in March through the end of October. So that's when their testosterone is increasing and pronghorn antelopes are polygonous. And so a male will defend during breeding season, a male will defend a small harem of females in, in a territory. And so breeding usually doesn't occur until mid-September, October, depending on which range, how far, obviously, as Chris mentioned, they are basically in Canada all the way down to Mexico, more or less, in fragmented populations. So depending on how far north or south their populations are found. Uh, And what I loved about their courtship is actually the females that seek out the males, and she'll go Mm -hmm. hunting for about two to three weeks. I felt like I hunted for about 20 to 30 years before I scored John. So (laughs) it definitely took (laughs) – it wasn't that long, but it was was a good – I didn't meet him until I was almost 30. So uh, there are definitely a couple – frogs or toads frogs. there in between yeah, them. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no yeah. i i all, all of my friend guys guy friends we're yeah. all we're, we're still good friends uh with, that's how you grow and learn right 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 right. i always yeah. teach john i'm like if if we would have hung out in our early 20s we probably wouldn't have liked each other we were yeah yeah i needed i needed too those different. frogs and toads in between but yeah we we're too different um anyways no. So, but the female seeks out the male and she'll use her scent glands and she'll, she'll drop some uh, nice smelling scents for the male uh, to help let, let him know that she's, she would like to see him. And the scent glands that can be used for courtship are located on their jaw, between their hooves, and like I said, on the rump or the tail. So, they have lots of good smells coming from all different parts of their body. And once a male and female do get together... Her pregnancy or gestation is going to be about 252 days. And then all the females in the area um, or in the harem are going to have a synchronized birth, which I think is just fascinating. And beyond the physiology of that, I think is beyond a lot of researchers understanding and uh, or and or at least a different pod for a different day. But, yeah, all these females that are in a harem together will give um, birth within days of each other regardless if they are bred earlier on in breeding season or later. And the female will give birth in the spring, typically to one fawn, a singleton. But what's super fascinating, Chris, which I don't know if we've come across this in any other species, is once a female has become like a seasoned mother, she's more likely to have two fawns in her subsequent births. So it's like her body's like, okay, I, I know what I'm doing for one. Now I'll have two at a time.
0: Two,
1: yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, for me, I'm like, twins. now that I know what I'm doing, no way I don't want twins. <laughs> I know.
0: One is more I than know. enough.
1: So, yeah, it's oh, really yeah. it's interesting. But maybe it's be genetics. Like, okay, she's a producer. Yeah. She's healthy. Let's, you know, get right. more into the population. Um, But just like any hoofstock or antelope species, the young are born pretty weak. And uh, although they can stand and nurse within hours uh, because they are hoofstock. They can't quite keep up the pace with the adult. So the mothers and the young will rest near water until the fawn has gained some strength. And then the females will actually often leave the uh, the young in hidden locations, almost like deer do, while they go out and forage um, for a little while. But within three weeks, they're eating cactus and partially weaned and learning yeah, how to yeah. forage and following mom. So it moves pretty quickly. But what I found super striking is that female pronghorn antelopes will care for their young from for one to one and a half years after birth before they become completely independent. Oh wow that's a lot of Yeah, time. so that's different yeah. than a lot of other um hoofstock. So hoofstock. yeah. And then lastly Chris, uh pronghorn antelope will become mature around their second year of life. Um and then once they become independent after a year, year and a half, uh they'll reach sexual maturity around two years of age. However, males might not start breeding until the third year or later, because once again, they have to win over uh, the females and of course compete against that more dominant, older uh, pronghorn male. Right. Right.
0: Right. I mean, it's, you know, and they only live up to 10 years, so they got to breed, you know, early in their life cycle uh, than later. So it's interesting you talk about that, AJ, because, you know, before the expansion westward, Uh, with the Europeans, there was over 35 million pronghorns in the Western half of North America. Now, by the end of the 1800s, that population was devastated down to 13,000. So you went from 35 million to 13,000, but with focused conservation, now they're up to about 700,000, like we said, in the wild. Now I did list the endangered species so the american and Oregon pronghorns you know they're in that that 700,000 range they're kind of lumped together the sonoran there's about 500 of them left so they're endangered and the peninsular pronghorn probably only 50 left in the wild maybe 150 so they're hurting they're hurting and those are the ones that the la zoo is working with so habitat loss is the major driver and then also hunting you know for meat and stuff so conservation wise those subspecies are in trouble but there are organizations out there and angie had me do it this week because our so our friend uju gave me a list they said the u.s fish and wildlife or the wcs but the the one that i want to highlight is the arizona antelope foundation because i was like a new one throw a new one in the mix And their mission is to actively seek to increase pronghorn populations in Arizona through habitat improvement, habitat acquisition, and translocation of animals to their historic range. And they work with the public to preserve these animals and their range. So I thought about it was really cool is they say they've already uh, preserved over 100,000 acres for these antelope and they're working specifically on the antelope. And they have a license plate, other things in Arizona working. But what's also cool is it's it's when you preserve habitat for antelope, you're preserving habitat for so many more species. So that is what, you know, I, I think this is a great organization. Again, a smaller one that shows it's not just the big boys and girls or the big girls and boys out there, World Wildlife Fund, all these other major ones. There are these smaller organizations out there doing the work, and I I really love to shine the light on them. So you can check them out. It's at azantelope.org, A-Z-A-N-T-E-L-O-P-E.org. Check them out, see what they're doing. You know, if you live in Arizona, you know, you can maybe become a member or volunteer and help them out. But those are the organizations that just uh, warm my heart, warm my heart every time.
1: Awesome, Chris. I love giving a shout out to some of these local groups that are really making a difference. So thank you. And thank you to our listeners for the recommendations. And once again, 2021 is going to be an amazing year. And we look forward to more recommendations. You can email us at allcreaturespod at gmail.com or join us on Facebook or Instagram. And we actually have a Facebook all creatures group that we share articles back and forth. I just posted one today about conservation optimism and then some of our star uh, group members post all these cool evolutionary facts and just physiology. There was a fun physiology one on there about, um, I think the heron the other day and it's trachea. So if any of those things sound amazing to you, if you're an animal dork like me yes, yes, <laughs> and yes, Chris, yes. come yes. join us and get involved in the conversation because All Everyone listening, regardless of your age, where you live, you're all conservation heroes and we appreciate what you do by helping educate yourself, helping educate others. That's that's what we need to do. That's the first step in the right direction. So please share this podcast and uh, let Chris and I know how we can keep you interested
0: yeah absolutely thank you for listening thank you for supporting us you know check out these organizations share this information share these episodes it, it's we're, we're growing we're making a difference all of us together we're helping preserve these species and, and we're just going to keep fighting week in week out so thank you
1: thank you everyone bye bye listen learn share join the movement at allcreaturespod.com